Matthew chapter 13 this morning. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, In the ministry of Jesus, this is a a season of rejection. The Pharisees and the scribes had rejected him, more interested in their own power base and more interested in preserving their traditions. They rejected Jesus Christ as a candidate for Messiahship. The multitudes were also not so much rejecting him outright, but not understanding him. Their vision, their idea, because of all of the miracles that they had seen performed, all of the signs, was that this same Jesus was going to march in Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman authorities and set up a kingdom here on earth and bring in the golden age. That was their mindset, and so they really didn't get Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, they rejected him outright, but the multitude, they really didn't get him. But the problem with the multitudes is that they thought they got him. That was their problem. They were in a spiritual fog. They couldn't see. Their eyes were blinded and their hearts were closed, but they didn't know that their eyes were blinded. They thought they got it, but they really didn't get him at all. Jesus had just finished identifying his true family back in chapter 12 and said that it's made up of those who do the will of the Father in heaven. What Jesus is interested in is bringing men and women into a personal relationship with his Father and with himself. That's what he wants. He wants those that will follow him, that will understand who he is and who will actually follow him. And so here we have this scenario in chapter 13. He now begins to speak to them many things, it tells us in verse 3, in parables. And it's important to note that at this point in his ministry, this is a brand new way of teaching. He's never taught up to this point in his ministry in parables. But now he's teaching in parables. And he begins the first of a number of parables in this particular chapter. But that's what he's doing. That's his methodology. The idea behind the word parable in the Greek language is to throw alongside of. So what it is, it's throwing a spiritual truth alongside of an earthly analogy. That's what Jesus is doing. He's throwing along a spiritual truth next to an earthly analogy. And the parable he's going to give us, which we call the parable of the sower, is the first of four spoken to the multitudes in this chapter, And then there are those spoken to the disciples. So notice the scene. Let's get that in our mind. And imagine yourself being one of the crowd that day, whether you're a disciple or one of the multitudes. And imagine Jesus coming out of the house and sitting by the sea, but something happens. Great multitudes gather so that he's no longer able to instruct them from the side of the lake. He's actually got to get into a boat and put out from the sea a little bit, sit down in the boat and instruct them from the boat. So you're 
as part of the crowd standing on the seashore, and he, as the teacher, is sitting in a boat somewhere offshore. Spurgeon suggests, sort of humorously, that maybe this is a great way to cure sleeping in church. To do it this way, have the teacher sit and everybody else stand. Well, that's a funny response to this, but that's exactly the scene. So they're gathered and they're watching and he speaks to them in parables. So picture yourself on this scene. Put yourself in the sandals of those that are watching. And then he's going to deliver the parable of the sower. So are you there on the seashore? Are you there? Do you see Jesus in the boat? Now, I know it's a stretch, but just pretend that I'm going to be Jesus coming to teach you. Okay, this is what happens. Sit down. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Sermon's over. That's it. That's all. Pushes the boat back to the shore gets out of the boat, goes on its way. Great message. What? (laughs) Now, everything in the story was familiar to them. They knew about the sowers of seed reaching into their seed bag and throwing the seed out. They saw that all the time. They saw in their minds the thing that Jesus was describing, some of the seed falling by the wayside, and they couldn't plow that seed into the soil, so they just bypassed it, and eventually the birds would come and munch on that seed. Other seed would fall on the rocky ledges that had a little bit of earth, but not enough to really allow the seed to go down deep and germinate into the soil and produce fruit. And so when the sun came up, it was just too hot for that seed, and it couldn't survive. And then other seed went into the ground, and it was very fertile ground, apparently. Maybe too fertile, because thorns grew up as as well as the actual seed, and the thorns choked the seed, and so that seed didn't produce anything. And then other seed, which of course is the best condition, fell on good soil, and that seed produced a a crop, 30, 60, and 100-fold. They all saw that. They understood it. It was common in their day. But then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the end of the message. What? What's he doing? What was that about? So you can just hear George and Martha walking home that day. And George and Martha walk home and they say, that was a really nice little story that he told us, but nothing new to us. Oh well. And then... Fred and Genevieve, they're walking home, and they say, 
Whatever does that mean? I mean, it's a nice story. It's not new to us, but that's the teacher. He's got to have something in his mind in, in terms of what that means. What does that mean? We've we got to go start asking some questions. Maybe we can get an audience with Jesus himself, and maybe he'll tell us. Or maybe one of his disciples will explain the meaning to us. But we've got to find out, what did that teaching session mean? What was it all about? Now, George and Martha, who asked no questions and just go home and let it, let it sit, they're exactly the ones that Jesus describes in the story. They're the seed that fell by the wayside, and eventually the birds of the air are going to come and swallow up that seed, and they get nothing out of the lesson. But the others, who are like Fred and Genevieve, they're the ones that ask questions. And what are they doing as they begin to ask questions? What do they do when they begin to seek the answers? They're moving from being one of the multitudes who don't get it to one of the disciples who are learners. They're on that journey now because they're starting to search. They're starting to seek. They're starting to ask questions. Because at its core, the meaning of a disciple is a learner, a follower. That's what they were becoming, learners, followers. So what was this all about? This was all about Jesus trying to reach these multitudes. What's the key and central point of Ephesus in this parable? It's verse 9. There's no question it's verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is all about the hearing here and about people and how they're going to receive and understand and respond, how they're going to hear the word. That's what he's about here. That's what he's responding to. That's what he wants to tell them. And in the next verses, verses 10 through 23, which include the explanation of the parable, every single verse will have some kind of a reference to hearing or the importance of hearing. Again and again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you hear, then more will be given. If you don't hear, then what you have will be taken away. Hearing, hears, hear. These things are mentioned in every single verse following this one. So there's no question that the emphasis of this parable is to get the people that are listening into a place where they'll really begin to start to hear. Well, the disciples in verse 10, they're curious. Remember who the disciples are. They're the learners. They're the followers. They're curious. Notice what they do in verse 10. They came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? That's what disciples do. Disciples ask questions because they want to learn. That's what they did with Jesus. They said, why do you speak to them in parables? They were just doing what disciples do. Mark's uh, parallel passage to this tells us that they asked him this when he was alone. And then uh, there were those that were around the, tr the 12 disciples that asked him concerning this parable. So he's going to explain to them why he was speaking to them in parables. And it's going to be an answer that he gives them that is hard to understand at first. But hopefully, as we hear Jesus' heart in this, we'll be able to grasp why he was doing this. Why was he speaking to them in parables? Why was he telling them a story that had no apparent meaning spiritually to them? So he answers the question, why do you speak to them in parables, in verse 11. He answered and said to them, 
because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Notice now the contrast. To you, who are the to you? They're the disciples, that the question askers, the learners. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You're going to receive it because you asked. You're going to receive it because you're interested. You're going to receive it because you want to learn and you want to grow. But to them, it has not been given. Them? Who are the them? The them are the multitudes, those that are not disciples. They're the Fred and, and, uh, and or yeah, the Georgian, I forgot my names here, the Georgian Marthas. They're the Georgian Marthas that ask no questions at all. They're the them, the multitudes. The them don't receive the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. They don't get it. They won't receive illumination. They won't receive further revelation because they're just not learners. They're not interested. They're not hungry. But to those that are, it will be given, he says. Verse 12, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So Jesus is saying in verse 13, he speaks to the multitudes in parables because they see but don't see, and they hear but they don't understand. So again, back to the question, why does he go away? Tell the story, he who has ears to hear, and then walk off the stage, so to speak. Why does he do it? He does it to obscure the truth from the unresponsive. He doesn't want them to know what the truth is. He doesn't want to make it evident to them. He wants to shake them out of their spiritual lethargy. He wants to get them out of the fog they're in. You see, they thought they got it, but they didn't. So what do you do? It's kind of like somebody is about to go down because he's about to lose consciousness. And I remember one time in football in high school, getting my bell rung pretty hard. I went up against this offensive tackle, and he rung my bell pretty hard. And I had to come out of the game. And I remember what the coach did. He broke a vial of smelling salts and shoved it through my face mask to get my attention. It was like he was slapping me upside the face just to wake me up. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here by by beginning to speak in parables. He's putting smelling salts in front of their nose and waking them up. He's slapping them across the face. Wake up, gang. Wake up. You don't get it, and you think you do. So I'm going to obscure the truth from you deliberately so that they'll go home and they'll say, that didn't make any sense. What does that mean? What should we make of this teaching? Why is he using this methodology? What's this story about? And begin to ask questions. He's doing it because of his mercy. He's speaking parables because they were blind and they didn't know it and they were uh, unable to understand and they didn't know it. Verse 14, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their eyes are hard of hearing. Their eyes have, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. 
quoting Isaiah, predicting this kind of response. But blessed are your eyes, verse 16, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. The deliberate hiding of the truth from the unresponsive. He was holding them accountable at this point. If you have, more will be given. If you don't have, what you do have will be taken from you. In other words, a man who developed whatever light and grace and opportunities that he has will receive more light, grace, and opportunities. But the man who does nothing with his light, grace, and opportunities, those things that he's already perceived will become foggy and unrecognizable to him or to her. Now, the thing that's important to understand here as we get into what Jesus is going to do in terms of interpretation, we need to understand that as he interprets the parable, the seed that is sown is the word of God. Now, let's not narrow this down to make it too restrictive in its meaning. The seed that is sown is the word of God. It's not necessarily restricted to the preaching of the gospel and people's response to the gospel. Oftentimes when this parable is commented on, it's commented on from that perspective. Jesus preaches the gospel through preachers, and there are four different kinds of people who respond to the gospel, and that's going to determine their eternal destiny. But Jesus didn't confine the meaning of the parable of the sower just to the event of preaching the gospel. It includes that for sure. But it's beyond that as well. It's referring to any time the word is, is sown. Any time there is the opportunity to hear the word. It could be while I'm reading my Bible. It could be while I'm listening to my Bible on my iPod. It could be while I'm listening to a sermon online or through a CD. It could be while I'm sitting in a crowd like this, being part of a congregation in which a sermon is being preached. Anytime the word is being sown, anytime, there are responses to the seed. And that's what the interpretation has to do with. It has to do with our responses to the seed. If we restrict it only to the process of salvation and conversion, then we lose the present application of it. And I'm in every bit as much danger now as a disciple of Christ for these 39 years of being an unresponsive hearer to the word as I was at any other time in my life. And I have to guard against this. And I find myself in situations where I'm hearing the word. And I'm doing other things with my mind. At pastor's conferences, one of my favorite hobbies is to critique the pastors that are preaching. <laughs> and as I'm busy critiquing and evaluating and using what I do know about the proper preparation of a sermon, not all of which, by the way, I apply myself, I'm critiquing and I'm discerning and I'm evaluating and so on and so forth, I'm totally missing what was actually being said. 
the Word of God that was being ministered in that moment. It's going just like this. I'm not understanding it. I'm not seeking to apply it for my own life. See, I'm in very much the same position as one of the multitudes in that way because I am in danger of losing the opportunity of hearing and applying the Word. And so it is with the other kinds of soils. So let's not restrict it too much. Let's widen it to its intended meaning. Jesus was talking about the sowing of the word. He doesn't even identify the sower. It's not necessarily only Jesus. It's Jesus ultimately through any means or channel that he uses to get the word of God out. Any means or channel. And he commends his disciples and tells them that they had received a tremendous privilege in being able to see and hear the things that they were seeing and hearing. Why? Because many prophets in ancient days and many righteous men in each ancient days had longed for the time, the opportunity to be able to hear this, to hear Jesus the Messiah teach. And angels, from their position as God's ministering servants, they're studying the things that Jesus teaches to see how they apply today. So there's an awful lot of curiosity going on. Many prophets, many righteous men in past times, angels in present times, wanting to know the meaning of these things. But here are the disciples that were with Jesus, and we also actually get to hear from the Messiah himself and see and hear what he did and what he said. Amazing. So he begins to interpret the parable of the sower. Remember now, as we go into the interpretation, the emphasis is on hearing. That's what it's about, hearing. And notice how many times hearing is referred to. Verse 18, therefore hear the parable of the sower. He's answering the disciples now. Their question, why do you speak to them in parables? He says, therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. So it's clear that the soils have to do with people's hearts. This particular seed sown by the wayside, Jesus identifies him. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So the seed by the wayside, they can't plow it into the soil, can't make it productive, and so it just sits there. The birds come and snatch it away. It's exactly what happens when any individual hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, doesn't go any deeper with it, just kind of right over the top of the head. When that happens, the devil is ready to snatch that seed and take it right out of the heart. And it happens frequently. There's an awful lot of truth that is missed by all of us many times, and some of it way way unnecessarily that's the seed by the wayside and so what's the the need here 
The need here is that time and effort must be expended to grasp and understand and apply the word. Um, A good practice would be to journal our thoughts after hearing a message, to go home and think about it, write down our thoughts. What was the Lord speaking to my heart? What does he want to work into my life? And then actually try to pray it in. Lord, would you work that into my life? I, I don't do that very well. Would you work that into my life? Lord, would you continue to remind me of this truth? Whatever it might be, to do something with it. But if we just walk out of a session where we're being exposed to the word of the kingdom and think not another thought about it and not understand it at all or not seek to apply it at all, then we lose it. It's gone. It was there for just a moment, but then it flew away. It's gone. We're in great danger, aren't we? Not just you, not just the multitudes, all of us, me included. This is a spiritual danger. Not that there's a salvation issue attached to this necessarily. It's just unfortunate that we missed out on something that God wanted to say because God speaks through his word. That's unfortunate. That's sad. The next kind of soil, verse 20 But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Great response to the word. Yet he has no root in himself, no depth in his heart. But he endures only for a while, lasts only for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises, watch this, because of the word... In other words, it was the word of God working in the life that caused this tribulation or persecution. Immediately, he stumbles. There's just no depth. Something happens because now I'm responding to the word. Maybe my family doesn't like it and they reject me. Maybe my friends don't understand it and so they set me aside. Maybe someone decides... They really don't like it, and they begin to persecute me. They begin to slander me. They begin to reject me in a more aggressive way, and in some cases, even physically. And when those kinds of things happen because of the word, the one who has no root in himself stumbles at that. They, they ask themselves, what did I do to deserve this? I mean, if this is what I get for being a disciple, it would be better for me not to have opened my heart to the word. If this is what's going to be the result, if we hadn't received the word, maybe we wouldn't have such problems. And that's true. We wouldn't have such problems if we hadn't received the word. Jesus is clear about that. He said to his disciples, in this world, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Thankfully, not all of our life is trouble, and not all of our life is persecution, but our life does include trouble and persecution. Paul calls it the evil day in Ephesians 6, and there is the evil day that comes. So am I going to be able to grow through the evil day, or is it going to cause me to stumble and fall away and give up? What's the use? If this is what it's like to be a disciple, if this is what it's like to respond to the word, I don't want it. 
Now, a person can make a decision like that. They're free moral agents, and they can do whatever they choose to do. God gives everyone that opportunity. But there will be major regrets when eternity comes. And so he warns us concerning these things. Proverbs 24.10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So this seed that falls on the stony ground, it's referring to the person whose strength is small, who has no root in himself. The next one is verse 22. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So again, this is a person and a person's heart. There's a reception of the word. He received the word. He received the seed. He heard it. Apparently, he was stronger than the person with stony ground. He didn't stumble at tribulation or persecution. But something else happened, which is probably much more common overall. Something else happened. That is, the cares of this life came in. And the desires for other things, which is included in Mark's gospel in chapter 4, the same interpretation of the parable. The deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, the cares of this world, these things choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. We get busy, we get preoccupied, we develop other idols and other attachments and other things that are important. They may not be sinful in and of themselves, Inherently, they may not be wrong at all, but in the light of eternity and in the light of what Jesus has called us to be as his disciples, the things that we decide to latch on to and get involved in, they're just not expedient. They're not helpful toward the goal. It's like standing at the starting line of a long race and then on purpose reaching over and grabbing a backpack full of rocks and putting it on your shoulders. I think I'm going to run this race with a backpack full of rocks. That's a good idea. It's intentionally doing that when we add things into our lives that aren't necessary and aren't expedient or helpful for our ultimate goal. I was reminded this last week of something that happened to me many years ago when we first took the church in Monterey. We went on a camping trip out in Pine Valley. And uh, it was a long hike in for me. I wasn't used to hiking and had a backpack full of stuff. And we had a great time out there, built a sauna out there on the river. And it was just a wonderful time. And then it was time to leave after a few days, and everybody was ready to go. And I put my backpack on and started heading out. The first couple miles as we headed out of the camp were flat. But I knew eventually we were going to hit the bottom of a of a long climb upward. It was going to be a lot of switchbacks, and it was going to, be, going to be difficult. Well, I was really hurting on the flat part of the walk because, I don't know, it was so heavy. I didn't anticipate. Maybe the, the time away just exhausted me, and I was more tired than I thought. It was so, so heavy. And I didn't know that I was going to make it. I, I, I anticipated that ascend, and I thought, this is going to be brutal. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I was young and stronger than I am today. And one of the brothers 
had mercy on me. He came over and he said, Bill, Bill, put down your backpack. Put it down. So I took it off and put it down. Somebody had put a boulder in there. I don't know how much it weighed, but a shop that's this big and it weighs 15 pounds or 16 pounds, it was, it was heavy. He took that thing out of the backpack and laid it on the ground, and I put the backpack back on, and it, it felt light as a feather, and I practically raced up that hill. Overall, it was a good thing that I had that heavy rock because it gave me a great uh, burst of energy for that climb heading out, out of that camping area. But would I do that on purpose? Would I add this thing to my life and that habit and that expenditure and that deal, even if it's not sinful, would I do it on purpose? Jesus said, if you hear the word and receive it and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things come in, if we allow those things in, then what does it do? It chokes the word and the word becomes unfruitful. And that's something that we have to all obviously guard against very seriously. These things are the enemies of our soul. The cares of this world, the worries that we have. Worries about provision. What am I going to eat? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to feed my family? I mean, things that we ought to be responsible for, but Jesus said, don't be worried about these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in your seeking to be responsible, trust the Lord to provide because all these things will be added unto you. That's what Jesus said. And these are the areas that we have to be careful about. And so these thorns grow up. What do they do? They choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But verse 23 is the last scenario and it's the one that's obviously the most desirable. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now what's different about this seed? What's different about this seed and this heart? Nothing different about the seed, but what's different about this heart is that this person not only apparently has understanding, he's gone beyond just not understanding, he's asked questions. This person also has some depth within, is willing to suffer persecution and tribulation if necessary because of the word. And this person has carefully pulled up thorns when they start to grow and has resisted their growth within the garden of his soul. That's what this person has done. And, and he's, he's been diligent about it. So the word of God has actually been able to produce something in his or her life. And I think for a lot of times, I know this has been true of me, and and I think it's true of a lot of people. Sometimes we don't need more word. We just need better soil. Sometimes we need to take our hoe, our spiritual hoe, and go out into our garden and start pulling up weeds. Because these things are preventing the seed or the word from doing what it's supposed to do. Now, just think about this seed. What's the seed? It's the Word of God. The Word of God, it's quick and it's powerful, Hebrews 4. The Word of God, it teaches us, corrects us, instructs us, trains us for righteousness, 2 Timothy 3. 
The word of God is a lamp to our feet, a light into our path, enables us to understand and cleanse our way, Psalm 119. All the things the word of God does. The word of God is what God has given to us that contains everything necessary for life and godliness. That's what the word of God has, and that's what the word of God is. In other words, the seed, the word of God, has all the DNA in it that is necessary for us to bear abundant spiritual fruit. I remember years ago seeing the seed of a eucalyptus tree. I was surprised at how small it was. But over the years, I've thought about that seed of the eucalyptus tree and have realized that within that seed is all the DNA necessary to produce this fast-growing, water-sucking tree that provides great benefit in whatever context it's needed. Huge trees, a bunch of them lining behind our house where we live, from a little seed. And the seed of the Word of God has within it all the DNA necessary to produce life and godliness and power and change and fruitfulness and everything that we really in our hearts want to become in Jesus. The Word does that. The Word of God. So we have to be careful now that we don't misunderstand or lack understanding of the Word. We have to be careful now that we're deep enough people and we're willing to to handle difficulty and persecution and tribulation because of the word. We have to be careful that we go out into the garden of our hearts and pull up weeds and make sure that that they're not growing. In other words, we have to be diligent to watch our lives. These are the things that come our way. We mentioned the worries about provision that we have. In a tough economy like we have now, this is certainly a concern and a worry that many are being threatened with or tempted by. For pastors, there are worries about the church. Paul the Apostle mentioned that in 2 Corinthians 11 concerning himself. Jesus added in another passage that there's the concern about drunkenness and the works of the flesh and the carousing kind of an attitude that some get into and revert back to. All of these things, we just have to be careful that they don't dominate us. Instead, we do Philippians 4. We're not anxious for anything, but we pray about everything. And we do 1 Peter 5. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and we cast all of our care upon him because he cares for us. And we let him handle our concerns. So what's our application this morning, ultimately? I think for for me, and I would think it's the same for you, will I allow the Lord to search my heart regularly and help me with this? Will I allow him to search my heart to determine what kind of soil is there? Will I allow him to speak to me about anything in my life that might fall into the category of of thorns? Will I allow him to speak into my life about anything that falls into the category of not understanding the word? Will I allow him to speak into my life in the areas where I lack depth and where I've had difficult times because of the word tribulation or persecution? Will I let him search my heart 
so that I can rely upon him for strength? Will I allow him to help me in this quest for good soil so that the fruit that produces in my life is fruit that is the result of good soil? Will I ask the Lord to help me with good soil? That's the question. Will I let him do that? As we come to communion this morning, let's remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is the Word. He's the Word that became flesh, right? You with me? You with me? You with me? Jesus Christ is the Word that became... Maybe I should sit and you guys stand. (laughs) Jesus Christ is the Word that became flesh, right? Here's the deal. We need the Word that became flesh to help us bear fruit through the Word that is sown. So as we take the communion, let's partake of the word and trust him for the strength and power that's needed. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray for anyone here that has not yet made a commitment to you at all, but has heard the word preached and just a short word about the word that's been preached. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life here on earth. He taught things that no one else had taught. He performed many, many miracles that were seen by many, many witnesses. And then he died on a cross, even though he hadn't committed any sins himself. He died on a Roman cross to pay for the sins of others so that others would not have to be punished as he was. He rose from the dead three days later as he said he would, and he's alive today. And this is what Jesus said. If we receive him, we receive power to become the child of God, the son of God, even to those who believe in Jesus' name. If we believe that Jesus Christ was crucified for us and risen from the dead, we'll receive eternal life. It's God's gift to us. Have you received that gift? Have you reached out and said, Lord, that's a gift that you gave for me and for all of the world. I want to receive that gift this morning. How many would say, Bill, that's what I need to do this morning. I need to receive this gift of eternal life. Would you just raise your hand if you've never received Jesus? and this gift of eternal life, raise your hand right where you're you're sitting. I'll have a word of prayer with you. Anyone this morning before we head into communion? Lord, may be speaking to someone here this morning. It's your time to surrender. Do it now. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. This is a great opportunity for you to not only receive Jesus, but to make a public commitment, a public confession that you believe in him. Anybody this morning? Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. Do in our lives what you want to do through your word. And in this time of communion, in Jesus' name, amen.